I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. 2021 was our first year hosting the When Dating Hurts podcast series. Today, we will include segments we feel were some of our strongest, the ones listeners pointed to and said they remembered best. Here is Elaine, a domestic violence survivor who suffered through 20 years of marital abuse. The arguments became violent. They started throwing things at me and screaming at me. And um, my son's grades started to drop from A's to C's, I guess. And his teacher was savvy enough to notice the changes in his behavior. And she contacted social services. I think she probably had a conversation with my son. And the social worker showed up at my house one day. And by that point, he was hiding food. <laughs> your, hus- your husband was hiding food. He was hiding food, yeah. Yeah, your husband. He yes. had to control everything, the food, too. So he brought two dressers out of the bedroom, put them in the garage, and put cans of food, peanut butter, chocolate bars, whatever he wanted. And then we also had a refrigerator out back because we had a swimming pool. And he took these great huge chains with padlocks and wrapped them around both of the dressers in the refrigerator so that he had control, complete control. So he would take his key out there and take the chains off and have a candy bar and then lock it back up or whatever he was in there for. Mm -hmm. So you have this two dresser refrigerator combination with chains and... But separately, your son's in school, and at some point, the teacher talks with your son, you figure, and at some point gives your son some line like, well, how are things going at home, or whatever that was, would you say? I think so. I I never heard whatever he told the teacher was disturbing enough to her where she felt she needed to get the social worker involved. Because there's a duty to report situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she gets in touch with a social worker. Then what happens? Social worker comes to the house. And she separates the children and into their individual bedrooms. And then she interviews me in the living room separately from the Your children. Your husband's at work during this? Yeah. She went to his workplace and interviewed okay. him as well. And then she came back to the house. And she said to me, You need to go to the courthouse. I'm making you an appointment. These children are terrified. Your stories all match, and his doesn't. Mm -hmm, Of course. So I'm calling the courthouse. I'm going to stay with your children, and you're going to get an order of protection right now. So she did it. She made the appointment, and I'd never been in a courtroom before. I had no idea where the courthouse was, but I did. I went down there. And I got my order of protection, and she was satisfied. Okay, so you've got this protection order. Now, what does that what does that actually mean to the four people living in that house? Does that mean 
your husband has to go, does that mean he sleeps in the family room and everybody else is upstairs? But what does this mean? Like, what's different now? Yeah, it, it was pretty meaningless, really. He had to appear in court to defend himself. The judge didn't buy his explanation, so the, the order stuck. And it was for, I believe, a year the first time. But he did not remove my husband from the home because I had told the judge that I, he asked if I was going to pursue a divorce, and I told him yes. And he said, well, that'll all be settled when you go to divorce court. So therefore, your husband didn't have to leave the house. Is that what that means? Yes. Exactly. At this time, is there physical abuse going on too? I mean, is that all coming out? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, yeah. the judge is hearing this from you and maybe the kids, and of course your husband is acting like everything's fine. I don't know what everybody's all excited about, but mm. even under these circumstances of emotional and physical abuse, still the judge isn't saying, you, sir, you know, Doug, others will collect your your belongings and sit them outside and you need to go live somewhere else. You're not getting that at all. No. And I mean, I don't I understand had, where the, where's the protection in the protection order here? Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't, nothing, I'm, nothing I'm, happened I'm, except there's yeah. a piece of paper. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Here is Sherry Kulikol, domestic violence survivor and forward thinking entrepreneur. I remember a movie called Something About Amelia. Mm, okay. And my father forbade me from watching that, but they always had like the previews throughout, you know, in between. It was really just watching the previews that I realized, especially with him so, you know, vehemently saying, you will not watch this. You will not be allowed to watch this that was what was happening to me. Right. And that I could put the word abuse to that. Now, what I wasn't able to put words to still was sexual assault, rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and the physical abuse was more, you know, grabbing my arm very tightly. There were only a couple of times where I was thrown up against a wall or, um, you know, something very violent Usually it was spankings, uh, which were quite regular, Mm -hmm. a lot of verbal and emotional abuse, Mm -hmm. a lot of emotional and psychological terror, and several times a week rape on a consistent basis. Wow. I'm just so sorry. That is just the worst. And this is a man who was allergic to alcohol. He didn't drink. He was just naturally a monster. Any little thing would set him off, and you never knew. So we would come home from school and walk in the door if you saw the car in the driveway. You were on full alert. I I remember, yeah, I remember one incident. I walked in the house coming home from school. I'd forgotten to rinse out my glass. I used to drink milk in the morning, and I set it in the sink because I was running late. Didn't rinse it out, so the milk crusted over in the glass. And when I got home... I was punished severely. I was beaten. And then I was handed a toothbrush to clean the entire kitchen because I forgot to rinse out the milk glass. So So your mother wasn't really much help to you when this was going on. I guess she really, she was aware of, of at least some of what was going on, I would imagine, right? I 
would imagine. Yeah. It's kind of strange, but I have no memory of my mother in my childhood at all. It's almost like somebody painted a picture and of, you know, my childhood and just she wasn't in the picture. I know she was there. Right. Well, dad plays such a huge part. But I just have no memory. I cannot place her in any scenario as a child. So you don't remember ever even going to her at some point and saying, I know I did. Some version of this is what's going on with dad and help me? No. And I only told one person, actually, I didn't even really tell them. I ran away from home once went to it wasn't even a good friend it was just someone that i i have no idea why i went to her house but i ended up at her house and her parents of course concerned that i was running away called my family and my father came and picked me up right yeah i bet that set him off oh yeah um he kept a gun in his nightstand and when i got in the house he loaded around and put it up against my head And said, if you ever tell anyone again, I'll pull the trigger. And I never told anyone again. (laughs) That is convincing. And I was not the one that that turned him in. Uh, My One of my younger sisters actually told a teacher who, mandatory reporter, called it in. And I found myself as a junior in high school with the police coming into the high school. I was called into the office and put into the back of an unmarked police car, my brother and I, and taken to the police station where we were questioned. My father was arrested. My mother spent the next year fighting to keep him out of jail because she worked part-time. They had bought a house that they could barely Mm. afford with four kids in a nice neighborhood. And how was she going to make it work? Right, right. There we go. Yeah. And you know, can you blame her? <laughs> I mean, I would guess his his spell over her was financial abuse, I would imagine. Oh, all kinds of abuse. Um, yeah, I, I bet he, he ran the whole, uh, you know, ran the score up with yeah, her. Yeah, so he was convicted. There's a lifetime restraining order against him um, for all of us. Although... Including, including your uh, mother? I don't know about my mother. Um, I do know about us kids. I do know that he was, he was charged with sodomy. He was never charged with rape because they didn't have enough proof. He got six weekends in jail. So he would spend the weekends in jail and he was allowed to go to work every day so he could provide for the family. Right. Back then they didn't have a registration. So he's not in any database as a sex offender. Oh, boy. So he's still alive and flying planes of sick kids from North Carolina to Ohio because he has his pilot's license. Oh, he's flying. Yep. So I hope parents are with their children when they're flying their sick children from North Carolina to Ohio. That's unbelievable. Yep. You'd be naive to think that he stopped what he was so unfortunately prolific he at. He is still very much a manipulator. And the unfortunate fact is, is that my other siblings are still in touch with him. And so I have no contact with them at all. Really? You're cut off from absolutely everybody? I've had to. I've had to. Laura Clary, 
sexual assault nurse examiner at Greater Baltimore Medical Center. And unfortunately, this is something that we encounter when people say, oh, well, this doesn't happen in our community, or it certainly doesn't happen in our family. And we know working in this field that these crimes don't discriminate. They can affect anybody, regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation, socioeconomic status. And maybe it doesn't affect your family personally, but maybe it affects your neighbor or your coworker or somebody that you come into contact with. So I think one of the first things we can do to move towards prevention is increasing education, increasing awareness, and just recognizing that this crime doesn't discriminate. I feel the very same way. And, and in some cases, increasing the education in some places, in some cases, would be like starting it because it's not like there's so much there and we need to dial it up. And you know, for people who think it doesn't happen around them, what I feel is that, that they look at it like, well, it doesn't happen here, so I don't need to know about it. And the fact they don't know about it, don't know the warning signs, then if it's happening around them, well, they don't know it's happening anyway. So it, it's kind of like you know, layered in, in its own trouble. Right. Laura, you lecture at high schools and colleges, and I know even a lot of other places, I'm sure private companies, you lecture about safe dating. So as a parent, let's say I heard you speak. Now, I've heard you, I've heard you speak. I'm walking to my car. What do you hope I take away with me? So I think to kind of piggyback on the previous question that this is happening right in your community. And again, it may not be personally affecting your family and it may not be your child, but maybe it's your child's best friend. So I really want parents to take away the red flags and things to look for. And when people think about intimate partner violence, domestic violence, they immediately go towards physical violence, but there's so much more to look for. So the red flags like controlling behaviors, overbearing, you know, um, tracking someone on their electronic devices, isolating them from their friends and family. So if you notice a child starting to distance themselves, not engaging in activities that they previously enjoyed, that's the time when we really need to engage in that conversation. Yeah, that's great advice. That is absolutely great. You're right. When you see your child seems to be changing in different ways, it's it's not they're just going through a phase or it's all about just part of growing up. I mean, you really have to start to to gently ask some questions. Let's say a mother or father discovered their daughter was in an active, abusive relationship. What should these parents do immediately, do you think? So first and foremost, you need to support your child. Let them know that you are there for them and engage in that conversation. So I always tell parents, you don't want to talk at your child. You want to talk with them. So allow them to ask questions. Explain to them what concerns that you have. Let them know that they don't deserve to be in a violent relationship, that they deserve better, and that this wasn't their fault. And if at this point the child is not ready to be open and engage in that conversation, let them know that you're there for them when they are and that there's other resources available as well. Yeah, I know that's got to be very hard to do. Make them aware that you are there for them, that what's happening to them is not their fault, and that they deserve to be in a healthy and happy relationship free from abuse and violence. Being in a relationship like that has got to feel like for that 
young person that's got to feel like you're trapped. I mean, you're absolutely trapped and you can't see any way out of it. And you think you like this person or love this person, but what's going on is not comfortable. It's, it's got to be awful. And they don't know how much to share. One of the, the other half of that question has to be then what should these parents not do? What should they avoid from doing? Because if I were to sit down with my child, let's say my daughter, and she was telling me these things, this is about the last thing I want to hear. So it's all, it's bad news and I want it to go away, but what do I need to avoid doing? So, you know, you never want to blame somebody for being in the situation that they are. They should never feel like it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what parents want to do is try to control that situation. It's natural that you want to control that situation to protect your child. But sometimes being overbearing and controlling can actually push that child further away from you. So you want to make them aware that hey, I'm here. I believe you. This is not your fault. And there are other resources. If you don't feel comfortable opening up to me as a parent, let me give you this number to a hotline or a chat room. Let me give you this resource to a counselor, someone that you can speak with that's maybe a little bit different than the perspective of your own parent because there are resources available. That's great. You know, one thing that I feel like I just picked up on this, even though my daughter's tragedy was over 16 years ago, but it just occurred to me in the last couple of months in talking with someone that it just seems like the nicest, sweetest, kindest girls and women wind up in these abusive relationships. Do you think it's that there is anything to it? I know, you know, my conversations are not scientific, but do you think there's a certain type of young woman who winds up in an abusive relationship more than any other type of woman? In my personal experience in doing this work for over 10 years, I can honestly say that there is no stereotypical victim. So we see over hundreds of patients a year, and they come from all different walks of life. And this is why I say it is important to really put this out there that this crime can affect anybody, including someone in your own family. So really having awareness about that, I think, is so important. Here is Ruth, a survivor who shares her marital domestic abuse story. If I recollect another time you and I spoke... You're in upstate New York, and the phone rings, and he takes it in the other room. And yeah, we were actually sitting at the dinner table, and at this point, I had two children. I had uh, my oldest, who was just about two years old, and then my youngest was about three months old, and he was really sick, so I was having to spend extra time with him and then trying uh, to get the two-year-old fed. The phone rang while we were sitting at dinner. He got up, walked out. And when he came back in, he said, you have two weeks to pack the house up. We're moving to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I think like anybody in their right mind, I was upset. And I confronted him and said, what do you mean we're moving to Chicago? We never talked about moving to Chicago. Right. When did this come up? How did this come up? Now, this is moving because of his job with General Electric, I guess? That's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. He said, I made the decision and walked out. There were not to be any questions asked, apparently, Uh, because he left. That's what Um, I take away. mm -hmm. Uh, So I was left there with the two boys trying to figure out how we were going to make this happen. He left shortly after and went to Chicago. I I don't even know if he was home a week to help me pack. Mm. I don't think he did at all. When we identified a home in Chicago that we would move to. So I was back in New York packing everything up. The movers came, getting that all together. 
and then again had to be kind of that advanced party on the other end in Chicago. Unfortunately, at this point, my father had passed away, uh, so I didn't have his support. Yeah, that's um, that's hard. Sorry yeah. about that. He passed right before my second son was born, and wow. um, mm. my mom helps me get the boys and the dog to Chicago. It was expected that I work, so I had looked at a daycare because I didn't know what to do with the boys. My youngest was so sick, I was having to take him back and forth to children's hospitals, both in New York and in Chicago. We got an all pair. And I'll never forget, I think she was with us maybe a month, and she didn't speak super good English, but she says, why do you stay married to him? He's oh. awful. <laughs> yeah, she's had the insight. <laughs> yeah, and and I just was like, well, and I think Chicago was the tipping point because he would come in from work, the boys would be at his ankles, essentially screaming to get hugs and kisses and hello, and he would push them aside and walk in his office, not say hello, nothing else, and lock the door and keep himself in his office until after I had gotten the kids to bed. Oh my, really? So very cold to the boys, which hurt me probably just as much, if not more than it hurt the boys. But that was how he behaved toward the kids. And at one point I said, you know what, we need counseling because this can't continue. You're not helping around the house. You're not even associating with the boys. You can't even say hello to them when they come in. This is hurtful. And so he agreed to go to counseling. And like I said, I think Chicago was the tipping point because that counselor asked him a few questions about why he didn't feel he needed to help around the house. And his response was, I run a multi-million dollar business and I don't do, I tell people what to do. Oh, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty strong statement, but that's a very accurate statement from everything you've said. Yes, very much so. Right. That's it. it. Yeah. It was very honest of him. Right. Right. Painfully. Right. Painfully honest. Uh, so the counselor turned to me and said, you need to get a divorce now. And th- uh, was this the first time in there? That was the first time the in there. The one and only, I bet. I huh? was just going to say the first and the last because right. he grabbed yeah. my wrist and pulled me out of there and said, we will never come back. That was early in our time in Chicago, and we were only there for 24 months. Toward the end of the time we were in Chicago, he actually got called up with the Vermont National Guard to go to Iraq. Um, so you then, hadn't, you have not mentioned Vermont and you have not mentioned, I imagine the army national guard. Would that be right? That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yes. he would has this somehow, I don't know, secret arrangement with the guard or something <laughs> like that. You don't know you about call it. it. You might but, call it that. When we were in New York, yes. he did work with the national guard. He had joined the national guard oh. uh, when he left active duty. He signed up for the National Guard. Okay. I was told when we left New York that he had been discharged from the National Guard. Oh. And and he had not. And apparently he had not. The day that I found out about all of this, my mother was actually visiting. We were out back (laughs) and I hear this screaming, like blood curdling screaming, calling my name get in here right now. And I was like, what? You know, I thought like, yeah, place the is house on fire. was burning down. Sure. Yeah. yeah. What <laughs> else would you think? Of course. Exactly. So I came in the house and he's 
sitting at his desk and I stopped at the door to the office and he's pointing at his computer saying, read this right now. Mm. And I'm like, I can't even get close to it because I wasn't going near him to even be able to see what was on the computer. And I said, I can't read it. Tell me what it says. So he finally said, you know, that they were sending him to Iraq and I needed to get him out of going. Ah. And of like course, a, I, like a hardship thing or, uh, you know, I don't and, know. I mean, you're supposed to write some letter to some general someplace and say, <laughs> it's almost like uh, getting your kid out of a class in school or something like that. You're going to get permission. I don't even know if it would have been that easy, but I didn't know what I needed to do. And I said, I said to him, I said, me, get you out of this. I didn't even know you were in the National Guard still. You told me that you had been discharged. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Right. And he, of course, proceeded to tell me, you need to write a letter to this senator and that congressman. Uh, I see. So forth and so on, which I ignored and walked out because I thought, Serves them right. Yeah, I, yeah you, I, you signed up for this. So. And I think in a way that was my chance to escape. Yeah, I, I've been looking for that somewhere in all of this because an escape plan has to start. You know, you, you've had these brushes with getting out of this with the annulment and maybe some other cracks in the wall that you thought you could shimmy through or something like that. But, you know, he's going to have to pack up and go to Iraq and... Now you have some breathing room and time. Mm -hmm. And I can begin to figure out what I need to do. Right. And and who knows? He may not even come back. Gabby, who tells her teen dating violence survivor story. Getting back to the Mike relationship, what were the earliest indications that this might be technically an abusive relationship? I mean, like his behavior, things you might call red flags, warning signs. What are some of the tip-offs that this could go the wrong way? So when in the moment of the relationship, I definitely didn't know that these were considered red flags, but there were moments where I felt uncomfortable, felt like something was off, and I felt annoyed. And there's a couple of examples I'd like to share with you. Please do. One example is that Mike and I spent way too much time together, and Spending a lot of time together is not always a bad thing, right? It's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing when it is about power and control and isolation. I felt like this was an early sign of isolation from my friends and family. It was very interesting and telling to me that my parents did not like Mike and neither did my friends. And it it was a mutual dislike. He didn't like them either which is an easy sign of isolation. Sure it is, because you have to keep them apart, and therefore you're with him. And Yes. Yeah, you're on was, your own island it, with him. Mm-hmm. You're stuck. Yeah. My parents, you know, one thing is they felt like he had zero personality, oh. but it was more than having zero personality. It was how he treated me, and my mom would describe it as an overall lack of respect, oh. complete lack of respect. And they did use the terms later, manipulative and controlling. Okay. Mm. And I'd like to speak a little bit about physical abuse and sexual abuse. Yes. You know, before this relationship, when I thought about physical abuse in domestic violence situations, I would think about kicking, punching, hitting, 
And I wouldn't think of smaller forms of physical abuse mm. that could escalate. Okay. So there were a couple of things that Mike would do that made me uncomfortable, that I found annoying and odd. And these two examples were pinching and biting, which when I say that out loud, it sounds kind of silly and like a really small thing. Well, it sounds like something an elementary school would do to another elementary school kid, like some, I don't know, some boy doing it to some boy or some girl doing it to some girl. It doesn't sound like two people dating, that's for sure. Yes, it, it definitely is a sign of immaturity. And what I think is problematic about pinching and biting is, while maybe in some cases it seems playful, I think in a lot of cases it's about power and control. It's the idea of them wanting to watch you squirm. Oh. This pinching and biting, again, as it sounds silly for me to say out loud, it would leave bruises, sure. which I think, I would think is so. very telling. Yeah. I'm trying to picture this and I'm having difficulty, but if somebody, let's go to the biting. It, I mean, what are you doing? What is happening? And then you get bitten. Well, I would say that the biting would show up in, in situations of okay. intimacy in private okay. areas, which is so uncomfortable. Okay. Okay. And it was very, I made that very clear that it was, I didn't like it. Yeah, I would imagine so. I have yeah one more example you know about about sexual abuse yes, that I think is important to share. Mm -hmm. Prior to this relationship, when I would think about sexual abuse in domestic violence situations, I would think of rape or coercion or threats of force or violence. But I think a really important form of sexual abuse in these relationships. Um, is power and control in regards to contraception. And okay. one thing that Mike would do um, is kind of took advantage of the fact that I was new to sex and I was very naive and he was very opposed to using condoms and used this as a way to exert power and control over me, I really believe. So it's, I mean, is it like some kind of a bargaining thing, meaning like I'll use a condom if you do this or something? I mean, what? How's that used? So I would say that Mike would say things like condoms are so expensive. It feels so much better without using a condom. So let's not use a condom. And I was naive and new to new to this. And I said, okay. When this pinching and biting was taking place, did you say, I got to be honest with you, this is not working for me or something to that effect? I would tell Mike when the pinching and biting was, was bothering me. I would say, this hurts. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. And looking back, I don't think it necessarily stopped. Here is Angela Hayde, a dating violence survivor. Sure. So I was 17 years old. I was in my junior year of high school. I kept passing this boy in the hallways and we would make eye contact and it was like I felt a connection I was like I really like I have no idea who this kid is I've never seen him before but I was intrigued I ended up speaking to him he was dreamy and back then he was a bad boy which is something that I notoriously went for I fell in love with him fast and hard and early on we just like jumped in it. We maybe 
hung out a few times and maybe three weeks after we started to like hang out and go out together, it was like, we're boyfriend and girlfriend very fast. And that honestly started a very slippery slope and truly was foreshadowing for the entire uh, length of our relationship. What happens next that gets gets a little bouncy for you, you know, gets uncomfortable for you where you think, oh, I, I didn't appreciate that. Yeah. So in terms of like red flags, is that yes. right? Yes, sure. From the beginning, he had told me that he had issues with substance abuse, getting drunk, getting high, whatever that would be. And I was just, I kind of thought he was joking about it and brushed it off. As our relationship went on, I saw how problematic his use of substances was, whether mm-hmm. it was in regard to our relationship or just his daily functioning. Yes. As time went on and he was intoxicated in some way, shape or form, there was always some type of outlash towards me, whether it was just verbal or physical eventually. But in the beginning, especially, it was a lot of just really mean words and ignorance towards our relationship, towards me and my feelings. And of course, that progressed throughout the relationship. Now, how was he when he was not intoxicated or in some way? Or or was he becoming like this all the time? Did it make a difference? For me, it did. So when he was intoxicated, I I wanted to be around him because I was so concerned that something would happen. He would get in a fight. He would drunk drive. He would go meet up with another girl. But he when he wasn't intoxicated, he was really in my eyes back then. He was really great. He He loved me. He cared for me. And at the time... I thought that was all I could ever ask for. And being where I am in my life, I see that I had set very low standards and he was barely scraping the bottom of the barrel. like Hardly meeting the standards at all. Huh? Yeah, definitely. Did you think of him as, I kind of refer to it sometimes as the wet puppy that you're trying to clean up and take care of and bring them along, you know, he's, you, that you become kind of the fixer upper type, you know, that, that yes. nice, that nice uh, Florence Nightingale type person who, who sees the faults, but sees the good parts and figures, well, you know, I'm just going to help them kind of move through the faults and then we're just going to have the good times. And this is just going to be just wonderful. Bill, that's a, a perfect analogy because throughout our relationship, I didn't realize it until later on, but I wanted to fix him. I wanted to fix him. I wanted to help him. I saw the potential for what he could be. And Mm -hmm. I knew how good he was at certain things and where his strengths really were. But I couldn't get through to him. And that was really hard for me to come to terms with in understanding that no matter what I did, I couldn't fix him. And that was his job, not mine. After a while, you start to see it's unattainable. So, okay. So at this point, we have this relationship that has flaws, but you're hanging in there because you're hoping you can dust them off and you can get to the better days and just have Mm -hmm. the better days. And then the the other business is behind you. So this is going along. Are you tempted along the way to drop this relationship and just say, 
This is a lot of work. I'm a junior in high school. Now it's easy for somebody who is older than that to say, my God, you know, you got your whole life ahead of you. And why are you going to stop for this guy? You know, he's not the last guy around. Yeah. And you kind of know that already, but you still hang in there, right? Yeah. I tried to look past it all. I wanted that high school sweetheart, like, oh my gosh, they've been together for this long. I wanted that dream, that relationship, that connection, regardless of all the bad things. I kept pushing them aside and looking towards the future and saying to myself, it's going to get better. He will be different. Things will change and it can't be like this forever. I distinctly remember the majority of the negative parts of our relationship my senior year of high school, and then my freshman year of college. A lot of the times the triggers for the fighting and the anger was me being jealous or seeing that a girl had texted him or Snapchatted him or someone had told me something about him that at this point, of course, I'm going to question it and our relationship. And it would be, hey, like I heard this is this true? And so he would just blow up at that point. Loose. Big temper tantrum, things, big blow up, yelling, things flying around the room, everything. Yeah. Yep. Is he getting physical with you at this time? Yeah. Yeah. At this point, like shoving. Um, nothing that leaves no- marks, so to speak. No, no. No. And here is Ryan, a breathtaking story from a male domestic violence survivor. When and how did you meet your wife? Well, I met my ex-wife back in 2013 when we were attending college together. She was enrolled in a local community college, and I was attending one of the regional private universities in the area. What were the earliest signs that there could be real trouble in this relationship? It's one thing to have a relationship with somebody that feels like this kind of upset stomach that comes and goes and you have good days and you have some bad days, but it's really not really going to go to a super bad place. It's not going to end. But in this case, you and I know where it goes. Some of the earliest signs I would say with with hindsight would be the goading to cut people off. And then also there was a lot of early cheating and excessive drinking and partying and flirting with other strangers in front of me and other types of instances like that. And then this eventually ended up evolving into just a consistent stream of lying or lying by omission and overstating particular things that I may have done, followed by like isolating me from all my friends and family to that love bombing we discussed earlier. And then when I would raise any of these particular issues, it would be met with either stonewalling always had a a certain sword hanging above it because early on she had often discussed some of the historical things she did like stabbing an ex-boyfriend or burning down an empty house that might have had homeless people oh and other threats let me pause right there so you're saying she stabbed somebody who what she was dating is that what you're saying yeah now how did you find out about that and when did you find out about that uh i found out about that pretty early on actually you know it didn't really shock me. The house burning down thing came about later on after we were married, and that really put me on edge in a lot of ways. But then it was relayed to me that the person that she had stabbed went to, went away for murder for 
like murdering his girlfriend or something like that. I'm like, holy hell, like this is gonna, that just shook me to my core a little bit, you know. Like, well, when you heard that she stabbed somebody, was that sent up like, well, there was this altercation and I had to defend myself? Was that the way you heard it? Uh, defend her honor was the way that she described it because the guy apparently was either running around on her and then she found out and chased the guy down and also chased down the girl that he was cheating on and ended up stabbing them both in that circumstance. So And that never came to court or anything? No. So I guess they didn't, I guess they got over it. They just didn't press charges or they just uh, turned the page and put on a Band-Aid. At some point in time, you're having a conversation with her and she tells you that she set fire to a house that potentially had homeless people in it, right? Right. I'm trying to imagine telling you that in such a way that I can't imagine the outcome that she wanted to get from telling you that story. I mean, did she think that was kind of funny or what? Uh, Yeah, she found a lot of humor and interest in that aspect of the particularly the death aspect of it and i'm sitting here driving the car we're on a road trip to go for a little hike or something i find myself just frozen in that moment just stuck facing the road as we're driving i'm like i want to look over at her and not but not take my eye off the road and i just couldn't like i'm hearing enjoyment in her voice like genuine glee about the fact that she had stated doing this and it's like okay was she pretty certain that that there uh, were people yeah. in there and they'd probably be burned to death? That's the way it came across to me, the way it was implied to me. So I guess I have to ask the question, why wouldn't your next thought be, I'm out of here? Uh, for me, honestly, I had such incredible low self-esteem and issues from my childhood abuses and neglect that you know, I could look past that. I, I have my own problems. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I I was morbidly obese at the time, and I was just always dealing with my own issues as well. So I'm like, okay, well, she has some issues. You know, I I knew this going in, and circling back to what I said about when we got married, I knew we both had a lot of issues, and that we would essentially be able. The whole goal was to try to overcome them and move forward and work on it together. So, all right, that's. I'm glad you told me that, and that that makes perfect sense. There's a term that I've seen you use in something that you wrote, but I think it's it's just so great, so well put. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yes. So that, that's uh, what I like to refer to as grade A hopium. So the hopium, in my definition, is essentially you're so addicted to the hope that things are going to get better that you're able to overlook any particular trivialities and emotional issues or major red flags that pop up in the moment because you're so future focused in a larger codependent type of environment or focus area for myself in particular that you just are like I'm I'm going to get to that dream I'm going to you know keep looking forward I'm going to overlook what I'm facing in the day to find myself really enjoying the hope of tomorrow hopium is what got me through most of those circumstances in my early life. And it was, this was just a continuation of being addicted to that. Yeah. I would imagine that what happens is if you're kind of focusing on the goal, then you know, there are going to be setbacks along the way. So these various things as they came along are kind of expected and it wasn't two completely perfect people coming together in this perfect union. You know, you knew that you had things that you were working on. So did she, so it kind of makes sense. And I think the term hopium is just fabulous because that would really help you kind of anesthetize a lot of your feelings as you go forward. 
Next is Rosie Santulli, a hotline counselor at the Women's Center of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. I was talking with a detective about a month ago, and he spoke about this guy who had a PFA against him. And one of his little little tweaks to bother this woman was she would put out the trash the night before and it would get picked up at the crack of dawn, but he would come by and put the lid on it, put the trash can up by the house and get this car and drive away. And it was just, even it wasn't a bad thing to do. It just was not what he was supposed to do, but it was his way of letting her know, I'm still around, you know, I'm still around. I'm still coming by. I came that close. I walked up to the house. Well, we had someone who, she's almost positive her car was vandalized. Mm -hmm. And there were several cars parked, you know, where she was and and near where she lives. And only her car was vandalized. Oh, right. Uh, Yeah. What what are the chances? And you can't prove it, you know, but it really set, she was doing really well. And this really kind of set her back a little bit. And she had a PFA. PFA and PTSD, I would imagine, along with it, right? I don't know if you use these, but but have you used risk assessments and lethality assessment tools in your work and specifically what you do? Well, we obviously work with police and do that, but I have to say there have been numerous times on a phone call where I've gone through those questions with someone because yes, a yes. lot of people, even though they know their situation is normal, they don't know how serious it could actually be. Mm-hmm. Well, they can't imagine he might do these. You know, he'll never do that. Yeah, and they and they don't realize as a threat is really being that series, you know, just little things like that, or, you know, and this isn't part of the lethality assessment, things change when they have children. It often gets worse once children. So this, like you said, that honeymoon period is great. And then children are brought into the picture. And that's when things often escalate as well. Yeah, that brings a whole new level of pressure in all kinds of areas. In terms of terminology, just words, how would you differentiate between these terms, sexual abuse versus sexual violence? And this is my interpretation and what I've learned. Sexual violence is all about power and control. We know that. But it actually, to me, includes sexual abuse, rape, sexual assault, trafficking, human trafficking, really any type of unwanted sexual contact. I think that sexual abuse is a subset of sexual violence. It's usually defined in terms of someone that's in a position of power authority that takes advantage of that position of power authority for unwanted sexual contact or activity. And you have to always remember, uh-huh. if you're in an intimate relationship with someone, you still have to give consent for sexual contact. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think it's their role, and but you, there still has to be consent. There's no doubt that some people think that we're in this relationship and, uh, and I own you, kind of, and I kind of go where I want to go. And I don't yeah. think any of us have had that emphasized enough in our lives that about the consent part. You know, it's like, I'm ready, let's go. And I've had experiences where women may agree to things they don't want to do sexually just to protect themselves. Right. They don't want to see what's going to happen if they don't, so they hang in there. Right. Yeah, that's, that's awful. So if someone were in an ongoing abusive relationship and you were the very first person that person spoke with, what points would you want to make right away? I mean, they have not told their sister and they haven't told their parents and friends, but they know you're with the center maybe. And they come up to Rosie and say, look, here's what's going on. Where would you go first? Safety, safety, safety. Make sure they are safe and they can stay safe. 
then, you know, it's important to be empathetic and again, let them know what strength it took for them mm. to actually call me or contact us. There is help and it's not their fault. And then you go through options. I, I have a little saying I say a lot in support group. I did not cause it. I cannot control it. I will not cure it. I like all three parts of that. The cure it part, I know a fairly long list of women who think they can. They switch into this kind of fixer-upper. I just need to help him get through the parts that are not working or broken or, you know, he... He came up in a tough family, you know, whatever those things are, the go-to excuses, whether they're real or not, you know, they, they feel like it's sort of like they're calling in life and, and they wind up getting caught up in the, in the propeller, you know, with these people. We're pretty pessimistic when people tell us that because we know that it's very rare for these men to change. We don't like when like a court says, well, anger management, if anger management does not help, it's like a checkoff to get them a leaner mm -hmm. sentence. Also, there are batterers programs, I'm sure you've heard of them, and, and they have some success, but I once went to a workshop on one of the batterers programs, and I was really impressed because if the person going through the program is not in with it 100%, they throw them yeah. out, you know, they, you know, they throw them out. But I, I do think you're not going to fix it, unfortunately. You know, even if you have a little new honeymoon period, it's not going to You know, change. in speaking with the executive director of the Women's Center, recently, Maria, she made a great point. I, I just thought this was brilliant. And that was, you're right about the anger management part. And that is that it, it's an easy place to kind of park the problem. Oh, he has, he has anger management issues. It's like, okay, does he go to work and beat up his boss? No. I always say that exactly. You know, does he beat up just about everybody in his life? Not really. Does he beat, beat his wife? Well, yeah, he does. He might beat his kids and kick the dog too at the house, you know, but it seems like, you know, when he's out there in the world, somehow finds uh, the tools to get out of the room before it gets too bad or whatever has to happen. But it's not this sort of spectrum of anger management that's we're talking about. A lot of, we also hear a lot of people saying it's mental health issues, that they may have a bipolar issue, but they don't recognize it themselves and they don't seek any type of help. Or if they do, they it does not last yes. long. And so we just stress, you know, your safety and your is most important. If he's not willing to help himself here, I don't know where you can go from that. So that is great for helping helping that person. What would you tell to others? Like what would you what should our listeners do right now to help someone who could be a friend again, a coworker, someone they know on their street, family member? Who's be, who they think is being abused, what should what should they suggest to those people? Where would you direct them first? I mean, it could be a hotline or, you know, should they go to a website or go to an app? And where would you send them first? If it's a friend, don't be nervous. Yeah, get, get information. It's fine to get information. But first, just talk to them. Let them know you're concerned about maybe what's going on and that you're, you can help them. Yes. Yes. Be a really good listener. Listen, listen, listen. Let them recognize that their relationship is not normal. Because some people get to a point mm, that they mm -hmm. think even hitting is normal in a relationship. That's what that they this do. Is yeah. how everyone treats their partners. And again, it's not their fault. Because so many times these survivors say, well, why did I stay? What did I do? And the abuser will often say, well, if you didn't, if you had made dinner on time, I wouldn't behave like that. I would say, connect them to resources and say, hey, there is help out there. Let them know that there are places they can call and get help. Help them to 
have a plan ready, a safety plan, to have that suitcase ready with all your important papers, anything you might, change of clothes, anything you might need so you can just get out and have a place you mm-hmm. know you can go, you know, a friend's house, a hotel, somewhere. And if they decide not to leave the abuser, stay supportive. Know that they still can come to you just to talk. And again, focus on their strengths, focus on the positivity. I mean, I think that's really- Yeah, that's great. I mean, being a great listener, a lot of us are not great listeners. And if somebody is your close friend and you find out this is going on, you kind of go from listener to judger to yelling at that person maybe and saying, you know, what, what the hell are you thinking about? You know, why are you hanging around this? I mean, so what happens is inadvertently you become almost like another abuser to that person, to their ears, at least you have no intention of being that, but you shift into that thing. You bring the house down on of them. You know, what are you thinking about? Get out of there, make a run for it. And that is a lot to process for somebody who's already dealing with a lot to process. I can imagine uh, in a, in a mother daughter situation or mother son situation, of course, it's the last thing you want to hear about from that person, but you're right. I mean, you have to hang in there. You have to get them to talk. Therefore you have, that's how you become a great listener is let them talk. There were, there were a lot of people who are not ready to leave. They're not ready to give up that relationship and you have to kind of like help them talk themselves out of that relationship. And everybody's process is different. Yes. You know, it, it, you know, it, a little steps are really good. It may take three steps forward and two steps back. And that kind of is how it goes. Everyone, some people just have one incident. That's their red line and I'm, I'm going, that's it. But some, yes. it just really takes quite a while. And I've seen it where over time you see small changes. And you can survive and live with the abuser. You know, as you can be, we still consider someone living with the abuser as a survivor. Yeah, you hope it'll go where where it'll be the safest place and the happiest place. And and and, and these situations are so insidious. You know, they, they don't happen in one day. They don't happen in one hour, meaning like the relationship doesn't go from absolutely wonderful to bad in one hour. The, the people who abuse take their time. And it's like tentacles wrapping around the other person or a spider web. By the time that you know it's really happening to you, it's pretty tough to get out of that. And that's why all the coaching is needed. And that's why we want people to call the hotlines and and get great help from people who actually know what to do. So there are all kinds of ways that can help a friend, family member, coworker. But still, with the intent of helping other people, what do some people do that has not proven to help the worst thing, and we tell everyone this, is to say, why don't you leave? That's the worst thing you say. Why don't you leave? Or try to force them to leave. That just turns people away immediately. Also, it's important not to be judgmental about behaviors that they see during the relationship. That's a really important, I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from the Women's Center is not to be judgmental. Also, never, never, never confront the abuser. That's just only going to be trouble. It's going to be trouble. Uh, again, listen, listen, listen. Just try not to make them think they're making mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's help, not hurt, you know. Or talking about them behind their back. You know, you see, and I think this, you know, why does she stay with him? Like, this is ridiculous. Because they have to know that they can come to someone. And they're embarrassed. That's the worst. When I was saying I get angry, there is an embarrassment about being a victim. Yeah, I, I believe sad. in all these cases that the person who's being abused, their self-esteem isn't going in the right direction. And to to bring the house down on them, to tell them 
they're stupid. You know, don't you see what's going on? I mean, whatever you say, which is a normal thing to probably do, you know, because you're so disappointed in what's going on. But that just decays that self-esteem even more. And their sense of loneliness and isolation just gets worse and worse and worse. And here, I mean, you're trying to be helpful and you're not helping at all. The other thing that happens, I just want to say, is often they really love this person. I mean, they have a history with them. They've maybe had children. And I think that's one of the hardest parts that they really, and, and they saw their life being kind of a storybook, you know, whatever, you know, every perfect, you know, the holidays, the kids. And it's almost like a grief that happens when they start realizing this isn't what it's going to be. I, I think that's really hard, getting rid of that emotional and loving bond with this person. You know, like the person they first met. That was wonderful, you said. That was Yeah, that's got to be very and, hard. And now isn't. You know, from the out, that's, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I can, I can listen to these different stories and I can be objective. I don't know the people. And I look at it like he's a lot of trouble and the best thing for you is to get away from him. But they have history, like you say, and and it was good at times, maybe. You know, I don't know if it was a contrived version of good, you know, if it was a real version of good, but it's it's not that anymore. And it's easy for us to look at it and just say, eject, get out of there, live somewhere else, do something else. It's just not that easy. And and there was love and there's maybe still some love. It's just it's it's just so sad. It's a dangerous form of it. Let's say we have somebody who just wants to learn more. What are some powerful resources people can turn to maybe to gain a little more information on dating and domestic violence? I think as far as dating violence, the website loveisrespect.org, it's a project of the National Domestic Hotline, focuses on healthy versus unhealthy relationships. There's tons of resources on that website. For domestic violence in general, I would tell people to go to the National Domestic Violence website, which is thehotline.org. And as far as dating hurts, as much as I had a hard time reading your book because emotionally, it has a lot of resources. I think your book is amazing and also is a great resource for especially young adults. Thank you very much. It was definitely written to tell our story, but with a purpose. And then it ends up with all the resources we knew of at that time. There, There are plenty more, but we and we also go through the warning signs. We go through the template that abusers follow. And then I wanted to just tell a story about people saying it doesn't happen here. We were going to, they were asked to give a presentation to a school district, to 11th graders, and the vice principal said, I want to see all your materials before we do it. So sure. we sent them materials, and part of what we did was role-playing, where we broke into smaller groups and talked about scenarios that might happen in a high school with friends and let them talk about it and what would you do as a friend. And in one of the scenarios, there was a slap involved. And the vice principal said, have to remove that because that doesn't happen here. They wouldn't uh. get it. They wouldn't understand it. It doesn't happen. Okay, we omitted it. At the end of our presentation, we asked for an evaluation of the program. So we collected them. But on one sheet in particular, someone had drawn genitalia all over it and cartoons of fist getting ready to strike female figures. So we actually faxed it back to the vice principal, of course, and just said, you should be aware of this in that group. And she never really, I think she just said thank you. But it just shows that people don't really don't understand what's going on and that you have to take it seriously. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the When Dating Hurts podcast series. And thank you for your suggestions, too. You can keep them coming by emailing me 
at BillMitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Remember, the When Dating Hurts book is in paperback, ebook, and audiobook and can be found on Amazon. Learn more about what we're doing at WhenDatingHurts.com. <laughs>